Before we begin uh, today's episode, I just want to uh, point out the fact that we had some technical difficulties in getting this recorded, and as a result, unfortunately, my uh, voice on the audio doesn't sound as good as it usually does, so my apologies for that. It's not your problem or your connection or anything like that. It's a, an issue that we had in recording this, but nonetheless, I think you'll find the episode interesting and entertaining. Thanks again for your support of the program. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, he's actually a returning guest whose episode was one of the most popular episodes we've had on our podcast. Now, our connection was the James Bond films, which we share a mutual affinity for. But but today, we're going to go in a different direction. Now, our guest is an author, a musician, but also a film historian for love of film and film music branch out in many ways. But we will today be exploring music for Italian composers. So please join me in welcoming Raymond Benson to the program. Hi, Raymond. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me again. Oh, you bet. No, I'm I'm delighted. I, I, and again, I think as I mentioned the first time, you, I know you won't remember, but we did meet, and I want to say it was at a a James Bond convention in L.A. And I, and I think you played the piano for a little bit. Does that does that ring a bell? Yeah, that was 1994. <laughs> yeah, and I think so. Yeah, going I, back a few I, years. Yeah, I did do a, my, my, uh, a version of my Bond suite that I've been sort of tinkering with uh, over the last several decades, uh, and I did perform it live, and Bill Conti was watching at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, compliment, he complimented yeah, me on it. Yeah, but I, I did that same suite again for John Barry in London uh, in two, in the year 2002, and uh, I... I, I redid the suite so it was all John Barry music and uh it was oh. at a gala where he was uh, being honored and I, I was the entertainment and so I had to do a 12 minute suite of his music for him and 500 people and uh you know one of the greatest moments of my life was him getting up on stage afterwards and giving me a hug I, I, I bet were you sweating just a few bullets during that yeah no I, I, you know, <laughs> You know, there was a dinner and then speeches and other things, you know, before I played the piano. And, you know, it, it seemed to last forever. And I was just, I couldn't eat. I was just sitting at the table just like nervous as hell. And uh, so anyway. Uh, well, that's 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 great to, re, uh, to relive that. And I have heard your story about that before and heard you play many times on YouTube. So 
I uh, highly recommend people to search, search it out if you get a chance to do that. But anyway, moving along, as, uh, as my listeners are well aware of, we always like to find out a little bit about the person behind the, uh, uh, the love of film music, and, but kind of away from that, if you wouldn't mind kind of just giving us a little bit of background about, you know, growing up and schooling and family and things like that, all before you got kind of interested in film music. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I was born and raised in West Texas, uh, a, a, a town called Odessa, and uh, I call it Odessalation. Um, <laughs> and, and, I've been you know, there, by the way. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I knew, I knew growing up that uh, I was going to leave because I really felt like a fish out of water there. I would go to the public library and grab the New York Times and peruse the you know movie ads and the broadway ads and things like that because you know we did you know we had like three movie theaters that and we didn't get you know i'd never seen a foreign film until i went to college so um yeah but but i got you know i got interested in film music very early on uh i loved movies uh you know i i saw the bond films on the big screen from the beginning and um it was uh you know the, the first record album I bought was a film score. It was How the West Was Won. And, wow. yeah, wow. so so I was I was really into film music before I got into rock and roll, which I got into heavily, you know, sort of in the mid to late 60s uh, is when I really started discovering more of the, you know, rock music and popular music. But before, you know, before that and during that, I was really totally into to film music. But after I graduated from high school, I did go to Austin, Texas, to the University of Texas. I was in the drama department. I, oh. I, I thought I wanted to be a theater director, um, and, and I was for many, many years. After I got my degree, I moved to New York City and lived there for 11 years, and I did work off, 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 way off, way off, off, off Broadway. Uh, <laughs> directing i did do one i did do one off-broadway production but yes i was directing and i was also composing music uh, i would work with playwrights and and they would provide lyrics and i would provide the music and oh, wow. i did many i did many shows and um it was a great life um but in the 80s the 1980s in the early 80s i started veering toward writing and i wrote my first book the james bond bedside companion in the early 80s, it took me three years to do it, and it, it was published in 1984, and that just kind of opened up new doors, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I then spent, you know, I, I kind of fell, after that, I fell into uh, the computer gaming world, because that was just yeah. getting off the ground um, in the mid-80s. People, you know, PCs were just coming into people's homes, and there were games, and uh, my literary agent, because of the Bedside Companion, asked me, you know, hey, there's, there's this company that is doing a couple of James Bond games. And they're looking for a writer. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And that got me on a, another, you know, path that I never dreamed or even thought I would be on. And that was writing and designing computer games. And I did that for about oh. 10 years. Uh, and then that took me into the 90s. And uh, that job also took me to the Chicago area. And then out of the blue in the mid 90s, uh, Ian Fleming's literary agent, the man, a man by the name of Peter Jansen Smith, who was running Ian Fleming Publications, it was called Glidrose Publications then, 
he called me out of the blue uh, because we had gotten to know each other since the Bedside Companion came out. And he asked me if I'd be interested in taking over the Bond novels from John Gardner because he was uh, retiring from the from the gig. So uh, I, draw, I left the computer gaming world and became a full-time novelist. And my first, uh, my first published novel was a James Bond novel published worldwide, and that was Zero Minus Ten in 1997. And since then, oh, I've boy. written... Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, and uh, since then, I've written... I, I have over 40 publications, and uh, that's, that's pretty much what I do now, although I still dip my toe in in the music world and play piano and um i uh, have taught uh, film courses I'm, I'm heavily in uh, into film history I, I taught at a college for many years film uh film history classes and i still speak publicly on a monthly basis on film topics here in the chicago area so oh, i keep busy i keep busy what an honor it must have been to uh be asked by someone who actually knew Fleming personally uh, to have you continue on with the the novelization of the character. I mean, I, I I can't imagine what an honor that must have been. It well, it was scary as hell, but um, <laughs> you know, I had to, I had, I couldn't say no. <laughs> I had to oh, try. Sure, yeah. And uh, they were happy. You know, he, you know, the the Fleming estate and uh, the British publisher and the American publisher had to approve everything I was doing before I actually got the, to get, could, could sign the contract. And, right. and apparently they liked it all. So it happened. That's excellent. That's excellent. Well, let, let's get into some of the music you wanted to share today. And um, I talked about in the introduction that we're, we're going to fo- focus on uh, Italian cinema. And in particular, two uh, uh, composers from uh, Italy that we wanted to focus on. The first one of which is uh, Ennio Morricone. I'm a big fan of, but you've chosen some cues, I'll be honest, I have no clue about, which is which I love, because I love being exposed to things I don't know about. Um, well, I, you know, film, uh, everybody knows who Ennio Morricone is, if you're into film oh, music yeah. at all. And even, even people who aren't into film music probably know who Ennio Morricone is. Um, and we're all familiar with, you know, his most famous stuff, you know, all the spaghetti Western stuff, uh, good, the bad and the ugly. And, and even some of the later stuff like cinema paradiso or the mission, things like that, uh, is pretty well known, but I, you know, I decided to go deep and pull out some tracks that probably a lot of people, only, only aficionados would know. And, uh, and I I know that that. maybe some, some of your listeners are aficionados, and you and I are part of a, a, a Zoom uh, music group that meets uh, occasionally, and we uh, they all probably have heard these pieces. Um, but, I, you know, maybe a lot of your listeners haven't. And I, I wanted to pick, you know, a handful from the 1960s that are unusual and cool and fun. And then the other guy I wanted to highlight is Nino Rota, um, who uh, has done tons of Italian films and was particularly known for scoring most of Federico Fellini's movies throughout the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Um, and he didn't really start doing Hollywood films until late in late 60s when he started working with Franco Zeffirelli on the, his Shakespeare stuff. Uh, and we, we really kind of got to know Nino Rota with his Romeo and Juliet score from 1968. 
because uh, that his theme song from that, you know, uh, A Time for Us was, became a standard and that was being played everywhere. <laughs> and then he did The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two and he won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. Um, and he did some other Hollywood stuff, but he was most, you know, he mostly did Italian movies and, and his Fellini work, I think, is his best. I just love his Fellini stuff. So I wanted to highlight some obscure Ennio Morricone and some Nino Rota from the 1950s that maybe some people don't know. Fair enough. I love it. I love it. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, so the first thing we were going to play is a, a piece that's uh, written by uh, uh, Morricone. And forgive me, I'm, I'm going to apologize up front to my listeners. My Italian is horrible. Uh, um, uh, Salam, is that how it's pronounced? Slalom. Slalom. Slalom, okay. Uh, yeah, Tell me a little was... bit about why you chose that amongst one of your favorites. Okay, well, I, you know, I've never seen the movie. It came out in 1965, and it's, it's, a, it's a spy movie spoof. And it stars Vittorio Gassman as the sort of James Bond type spy. But it also stars Daniele Bianchi and Adolfo oh. Celli. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, and I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. Um, it's probably not very good, <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> I've never seen it. But, uh, all, you know, the, the, the theme song that you're about to hear is, uh, came off of a, um, a compilation of Morricone mu- music. And I was always struck by how wacky it is. Because it was composed probably around the same time as Four A Few Dollars More. Uh, and it's got whistling in it. And it's got, you know, guitar in it and, you know, voices and all that stuff. So it, it, it's easily recognizable as a, as a Morricone piece. It's just, it's just a lot of fun and kind of wacky. And, and it certainly gets your attention when you hear it. Excellent. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is, again, uh, written by the maestro, Ennio Morricone. And it's from the film called, and again, forgive my pronunciation, Salome. Let's have a listen.
I'm curious because you are, um, we're going to talk a little bit about this later. Uh, you are a film historian, which I greatly respect because you have your, your knowledge is incredible. It's very broad and very just incomprehensive. It's amazing. What, what, what was it that drew you to Italian cinema? Well, once I got to college, um, you know, I was in the drama, the theater department. And so, you know, it, it really expands your minds. And I was in a, you know, a pretty big college and, and on campus they would show, you know, this was in the seventies. So this was before VHS or anything like that. So the only time yeah. you could see old movies is when they came to revival houses or, but on campus they would continually show movies, old movies, and, and they would show foreign films, you know, uh, Fellini and Ingmar Bergman and Truffaut and and all that stuff. And that's where I discovered all this stuff. You know, when I was a freshman in college, there was a, a guy, a, a good friend of mine who still is a good friend of mine who who knew a lot of this stuff. And uh, it was very early in my schooling uh, that he said, hey, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal is playing on campus. Have you ever seen it? And I said, no. He said, we're going. And I went and I just, you know, fell in love with it. And, you know, and then I started seeing Fellini and everything. And then, you know, the music in the Fellini films were were immediately, you know, they they were striking, and so I would I was buying Nino Rota imports, uh, even in the you know back then. Um, so, yeah, uh, I I I started studying film way back in the 70s, uh, pretty much on my own. Um, yeah, I mean through theater, but also just discovering it on my own and and reading about it and. Uh, studying directors and movie trends throughout history and uh, and uh, all the movements like, you know, French New Wave and all that stuff, Italian neorealism and really getting, you know, deep diving into it all so I'd understand it all. And by the time I was in my 50s, I was able to teach it. And I I've, I got jobs at, at local colleges to, to teach it. And this was all just based on a, uh, I guess, a personal passion, just something that developed over time. You didn't like take a class in or anything like that. You just took a real interest in it. Is it that? Be That's right. That? I mean, that? I was a theater major, so it's kind of related. But um, uh, and then you know my my cachet with writing James Bond and doing film novelizations and all that. That kind of gave me the uh the qualifications i guess in some some college uh <laughs> people, yeah. some colleges eyes and um i and then i was also doing this uh um monthly program with chicago film critic dan geyer we call it dan and raymond's movie club and uh, okay. we've been doing that now for we've been doing that for 16 years um and every month we we talk about in front of a live audience it's kind of like a siskel and ebert kind of show but we you know we stretch it out to almost two hours and we pick a topic and like say you know horror movies and then we pick our favorite horror movies and we show clips from them and talk about them and and we've gained a lot of you know a, an audience and and we're still going so yeah, and it, that also terrific. gave me cachet I'm, I'm, yeah i must tell you it's terrific so i mean maybe you know i was going to save this to later but might as well bring it up now how do people, if they want to connect with you on that and 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 be a participant in that particular uh, podcast, for lack of a better term, how do they do that? 
Well, on my website, RaymondBenson.com, on the appearances page, we always post what where we're going to be that month and what the topics are. Now, some of them are hybrid and are on Zoom. Uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, it was only in person. There was, I mean, nobody nobody was doing Zoom. Uh, so it was just, if you were lucky enough to live in the area and come see us in person, that's how you saw us. But when the pandemic started, some of the libraries where we uh, do our shows started uh, doing a hybrid and, and uh, Zoom presentation. So some of the libraries do it, some of them don't. So uh, for example, this in September, our, our first show is uh, on gangster movies. And that is on Zoom. So if you go there, you can register and, and wherever you are in the world and, and listen in live. Wow. I mean, imagine that. Maybe something, maybe, maybe something good came from the pandemic. And this is one of them. So it's good to hear. <laughs> let's, um, let's get into the, uh, another cue you want to play. And I guess there's two from a particular film you want to highlight. Uh, this is called The Big Gun Down, and, and it's part one, for lack of a better way of saying it, the way it was described to me. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to include that amongst your favorites. Okay, do you know, did, do you, did you ever see this film? Because it was released in the United States. No, I'm sorry. I, I, none of these I've seen, and I, and I feel horrible. I'm sorry I haven't seen them, but I just... Okay, I'm well, The Big Gun Down was... Guy. The Big Gun Down was probably the most major spaghetti western to be released in the United States that didn't star, that wasn't a Sergio Leone film. Oh. Uh, it, was, it was directed by Sergio Solima, uh, and it, uh, it originally came out in 1966 in Italy and Spain, uh, but it came out in America in 1968 after The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It was oh, wow. filmed... It was filmed before The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and was released in Italy before The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but it came out here oh. after The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And uh, I discovered it, um, you know, I was a big fan of The Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I had bought the soundtracks and everything and loved them. And then once I, it was in, I guess, some, probably late spring of 68, 1968, I was in the record store and... I saw in the, I always go through the soundtracks and I saw this one called the big gun down and Lee Van Cleef is on the cover. And I, oh. I meet it and it said music by Ennio Morricone. And I went, Holy crap, what is this? You know, and I picked it up and looked at it and I bought it right on sight and scene. And I didn't even know the, you know, I hadn't seen the movie. I just bought the record and I brought it home. And it, yes, it was, it, it was definitely Ennio Morricone music, you know, and then about, I swear about two or three weeks later, the movie came to Odessa and it was playing downtown and i went to see it and uh you know it's it's not as great as the the leone films but you know for a spaghetti western with lee van cleef it was good enough and uh recently quentin tarantino um sponsored the restoration of it on a blu-ray so you can get oh, the wow. the grindhouse version of the big gun down on blu-ray now and it has the original Italian full-length version that wasn't cut because the American distributor uh, cut a lot out of it, you know, <laughs> uh, as they tend to do. Um, so you get both versions. You get the American version and the original Italian. And, of course, in the original Italian, you don't hear Lee Van Cleef's real voice. It's a dubbed Italian actor. But yeah. in the American version, everybody else is dubbed except Lee Van Cleef. 
So just like the good, the bad, and the ugly was, you heard Clint, Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef's voices, and then everybody else are Italian actors, and they're done. Yeah. They, they all talk like this, gringo. So, you know. So I'm curious, <laughs> how how often do you? I don't know how to ask this. How often do you? I haven't seen this movie, but here's a composer I like, so I'm gonna buy this album or cd or whatever it is just because i like the composer i don't care about the movie is, does that happen often it does if i like the the composer i was buying in your monocone stuff uh sight unseen just like this one um just because i like them you know i mean i i'm that way with rock and roll i mean i have certain artists that i i will buy their out al- their new album sight unseen you know without yeah. even hearing it you know if it's a new yeah. album by somebody i love then i will just buy it you know Correct, and I, and I guess what we'll do, because maybe it makes sense, we'll go ahead and play both cues back-to-back, because there were two that you chose from this that you like. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what you were you thinking behind choosing those uh, to play today for our audience. Okay. Um, the first one's called, uh, on the record album, it was called The Big Gun Down. Uh, and the big gun and the other one was called the big gun down <laughs> and they yeah. both started the each side uh, the first one was the first track on side one and the other one was the first track on side two um but in the italian versions they were called the chase um and they were used they used the themes the main title of the big gun down is a vocal number using the melody that you will hear in these two numbers uh, the first one has uh, Edda Del Orso, uh, who was the voice behind the ecstasy of gold and the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West. Well, she's singing okay. the uh, the melody um, just with ah, ah, ah um, in this first track, uh, which is The Chase. And then the second track, um, it has uh, an interesting guitar intro and then goes back into the melody um, and that's called the chase number two. And in the movie, it does. Uh, the music is played during a chase when uh, the guys are chasing one of the main characters, played by Thomas Millian. Um, so it is the theme song of the of the movie, but instrumental versions of it. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. That we're going to play two different cues back to back, and they're both from uh, the Big Countdown. We're just Big gun down. Oh, excuse Big me. Gun. Big gun down. You're right. Thank you. I apologize. We're just going to play uh, part one and part two, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. And again, these are both written by the maestro, Ennio Morricone.
Do you know, uh, when, when Morricone recently passed and I was reading some of the obituaries, I was shocked. I was amazed at how many scores he had written. It, uh, what a prolific really? composer of, uh, of movie scores. And, I know. Uh, oh, well, well, well over 400. Well over 400. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and since you're a film historian, I'm curious. Is there anybody? Is there anybody that's worked on that many projects? Well, I'm not really sure. I, I can't imagine that there's anybody that uh, has outdone Morricone. Um, I really don't. I mean, Nino Rota did a, quite a few, too. He he has about half as many, which is quite, you know, almost 200 is, is still That's more still than, you know. Uh, I, you know, Italians seem to just churn out movies, and especially in the 50s and the 60s. They were just churning them out like crazy, and, and composers would compose the music like in three days, and they would record it in two more days and then go on to their next project. That's uh, insane. <laughs> That's insane. I know, I know. Um, so, yeah, they were all very prolific uh, over there. Um and yeah, when when Morricone died in 2020, I I was I was very saddened because he he is my favorite film composer of all of them. I'm, I mean, I love John Barry, I love Bernard Herrmann, I love Nino Rota, I love Danny Elfman, I love I love Philip Glass, and I love Charlie Chaplin, and I, you know, I mean, there's so many composers I, that I, I I love, but Morricone will always be my number one. I hear you. I, hear you. I, I understand that love connection with certain people and their style and those sorts of things and that's that's what i feel with john barry but i can but i can certainly understand because there's some works of morricone's i love so i can certainly understand why you would connect with uh, with him um the last cue we wanted to play of his and let me make sure i've got this right uh, let's see this is um again forgive my pronunciation i guess is it from the film or maybe this cue name compare uh Comparin Compañeros, Compañeros. Compañeros, excuse me, I'm sorry. Tell me a little bit about why, why you wanted to share that with our audience. Well, again, it's, it is it is such a striking piece of music that is wacky and weird and fun. Uh, yeah. it, Compañeros was a 1970 uh, Italian Western, spaghetti Western. Uh, yeah. I'd never seen it. Uh, it starred Franco Nero and thomas million and uh it it was apparently fairly popular uh it is more of a comedic western uh i think you know once they got into the 70s they got into the my name is nobody and uh you know making the kind of kind of almost making fun of the italian westerns themselves and i think this was the beginning of that trend where they were making the, the the westerns funny uh, and this piece of music by Morricone is just, it, it, you know, it's got the whistling, it's got the crazy shouts, you know, and the, the whip cracking and the, and the vocal chorus and, um, but it's just, it's just way out in left field <laughs> and I just love yeah. it. You know, when I hear it, I just, it just puts me in a good mood. So, uh, that's why I picked it. And he he was like that. And again, I'm not an expert of Morricone by any stretch. I'm not. But I I, I don't think he kind of stuck to one style. Some he, he would somehow adapt whatever the project demanded. Would that be safe to say? 
Well, you know, during the spaghetti western period, which was, you know, the mid to late 60s, uh, uh, he he did do a lot of the same style of, you know, when he was in the western mode. Um, they do you can you can tell that that's him and he is kind of in that mode. But once he got further into the 70s, he really moved away from that. Uh, you know, after Duck You Sucker, which was the la- uh, the last Western Sergio Leone made in 1971, Morricone, you know, branched out. He started doing more uh, serious scores. You know, he did the Dario Argento horror films. He did uh, he did 1900 that Bertolucci did on Days of Heaven that Terrence Malick. Uh, that was his first Oscar nomination. That was in 1978. He didn't get an Oscar nomination until that late. Yeah, uh, wow. and, and uh, he should have won then, but he didn't. Um, and you know, and then into the '80s, there was uh, once a time, once upon a time in America, and the, and the mission, which is you know an angelic score. It's just a yeah. really complex score, and the Untouchables, very very different from what he was doing in the '60s. Uh, yeah, and and onward, gotta, you know. Yeah, that you know, the Untouchables is where I got connected to his music i mean i i was aware of the speaking western stuff okay that's fine and I, and I did like it but it was like okay that's fine but for some reason with the untouchables he really struck a chord with me i mean it it was unique it was different it was but it was powerful and i just i just loved it and so i, I understand what you're saying let's um let's have a listen to this and, and it, again i'm going to ask you to say the, the name of the film because i don't want to butcher it uh, companeros Oh, Compañeros. Let's have a listen. I'm sorry. Compañeros. Let's have a listen to this. This will be the last of the uh, Morricone pieces we're going to hear today. Uh, and, and again, I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's written by the maestro Ennio Morricone.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. So I'm curious because there's a lot of people like me that, that we love film and, and, and we love exploring, you know, different things in cinema. We really do. But maybe we don't branch out into foreign films for whatever reason. You know, and, and, and it's not about racism or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's just it's hard to read, you know, the closed captioning and those sorts of things. But so what I'm curious about it. What are people missing out by not viewing some of this Italian cinema that you're talking about? Well, I think they're missing a great deal. Um, I mean, I I started, like I mentioned earlier, I was 18 when I went to college and started seeing foreign films then. And I got sucked right into them because for the most part, the ones that are still around, the ones that we still watch, you know, the Bergmans, the Fellinis, the Chufos, and people like that, and the Renoirs, and um, they're great films. That's why they've lasted. That's why we remember them. That's why people talk about them. They are absolutely fantastic pictures. Um, and, um, you know, if I, if I had to name my five favorite films, you know, one of them is a Bergman film. <laughs> So, okay, yeah. um, yeah. And, you know, um, I think it, you know, it enriches you if you, if you explore other, other international cinema, it just, it makes your life much more rich. And, and I think you, you start to understand cinema more because most of these guys are very much auteurs, um, mm, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're the, you know, the, the, the kinds of directors who make very personal films 
very meaningful films, the kind of films that you would watch over and over to get, you know, like you see it once and you go, wow, I got to see that again. And then you see it again and you go, wow, I didn't really notice that the first time and blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, we have a we have a few auteurs over here, um, but uh, international cinema really embraced the auteur theory and that that cinema was an art form rather than a commercial product. Yes. And that's that's the difference. I think, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood, they were they they started off and even set out and even to this day, they're out to make money. And if they can make art in the meantime, then it's gravy. Uh, whereas in an inter- international cinema, they set out to make art, and if they could make money, it was gravy. Right, right. And, and, and let's be honest, Raymond. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on this podcast today because I think you have a very powerful message to send, including to me. I need to. Do, I need to take in more of this. I I fully uh, accept that. You know, maybe I've been missing out on what I should be looking at. And hopefully my audience kind of feels the same way. That, hey, maybe I need to check this sort of stuff out. So I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that message with us. Frank, very much so. Frank, do you, do you have HBO Max? Unfortunately, I don't. Uh, I, you know, I've got uh, Netflix and uh, 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 Amazon Prime and Hulu and those sorts of things. But I, there's only so much I can do at this point with my right. financial situation. Right. But. Tell me well, about HBO Max for the our, our HBO viewers. HBO Max has a hub called the TCM hub, and they have cool. a lot of these films. They have a lot of the Criterion releases, um, all the Ber- you know a lot of Bergman and Fellini and Truffaut and all a lot of these great international cinema. So if you know Excellent. if you subscribe to HBO Max, you can see some of these. Excellent. So hopefully some of our listeners will take advantage of that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know. We, we've talked. We've talked about Nina Rota. Let's let's kind of dive into him a little bit. Okay. Um, one of well, the he, uh, well, I, and you know the order that we're we're. So I, I'm going to let you do the pronunciations of these because I don't okay. want to butcher them. What was the first thing we were going to talk about? Uh, the first one we're going to listen to is E. Vitelloni. Um, this was yeah. a this was Fellini's third movie. Uh, it came out in 1953. Um, now, Nino Rota had been composing scores, you know, way back in the 30s and 40s already. So he was already, you know, uh, uh, an elder statesman by the time he started working with Fellini. Uh, yeah. Fellini hired him and they they formed a partnership uh, just like Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone did. And so Fellini, uh, Rota did all of Fellini's movies starting with Fellini's second movie, which was The White Sheik in 1952. And uh, Rhoda Rhoda and Fellini just kind of went together, just like Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock. Um, And uh, I love the the, the 1950s Fellini movies, especially. Uh, I like them better than the 60s movies. I, I still like his 60s movies, which got a little stranger and more surreal. Uh, but the 50s ones are very realistic, mostly, and uh, very touching, and I highly recommend it. E. Vitelloni is kind of a kind of like American graffiti, only in Italy. <laughs> it's about a, yeah. a group yeah. of, of young men, a group of young men that are sort of never-do-wells. They're sort of aimless and wondering what they're going to do with their life. It's the post-war 
uh, doldrums in Italy, and they're just kind of like they're juvenile delinquents, basically. And and it kind of follows several characters and their you know how they treat women and what they do with their lives. So uh, and it's a, it's a comedy drama. Um, it's it's really wonderful, Eve Italoni, and this piece of music is sort of a suite of several of the themes that Rhoda puts in the film. So uh, have a listen. Excellent, we'll love it. Let's all sit back and enjoy and listen to this from composer Nina Rhoda. Your enthusiasm is infectious, I must admit. It's um, something many of us could use more of. Uh, it, it, um, <laughs> I had a question. Well, I'm I, sorry. When, I, when I talk about stuff, when I talk about stuff I love, I get enthusiastic. Oh, that's okay. That's, a, that, that's what I love. I mean, that's that's what we want on this program. Now. Right. Um, well, the next the next piece I want uh, we want to talk about is La Strada. Okay. And this came out. Okay. The film came out in 1954. This was my favorite Fellini movie. Uh, I love this movie, and he and he also got uh, you know uh, he usually used Italian actors, but he got Anthony Quinn to star in this movie, oh. and uh, and as well as his wife Julie, Giulietta Messina is Fellini's wife, and she stars in several of Fellini's movies, and she is a tremendous actress. And oh. La Strada is one of the oh, it's a heartbreaker. 
um, and the music is very famous and uh, you can hear the plaintive qualities uh, in the music here. Uh, it's about a, um, a circus strongman played by Anthony Quinn who basically is a street performer and he, he buys a sort of a simple-minded woman from a family who wants to get rid of her and that's Julietta Messina's character and he hires her to be his assistant on the road which is what La Strada means the road and so they're okay. they're traveling okay. street performers so she dresses up in clown makeup and he does his his strongman act and she you know holds the hat and does little mime things and um it's kind of a love story ending up being a love story <laughs> and it's 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 very touching and i just love this movie absolutely love it and the music is just as good well let's have a listen for ourselves and uh, discover that again this is written by composer inaroda let's have a listen
So I want to switch gears. I mean, there's still another uh, cue we might we might play here in a moment for Italian cinema. We might save it for the bonus section. I don't know. But uh, one of the things that I mentioned is that you're a, a prolific author, and and that's that's true. You really have. You've written all kinds of books, as you mentioned earlier. So I'm really curious because I don't know anything about being a novelist or writing a book. Uh, what's your process to being able to write a place? I mean, I, I, writing a piece. I mean, do you have like, do you get all of a sudden in your mind a central idea of what, okay, this is what it's going to be out and then you write things around it? Or, or just, just kind of talk to me a little bit because you've really written a lot of novels. And so I'd be curious about what your process is for doing that. Well, that's a good question. Uh, everybody's different, uh, mind you. Uh, every author has their own process. Uh, in, in the writing world, we call ourselves either plotters or pantsers. That is, if you're a plotter, you, okay. you, like to, you like to outline and plot it out before you start writing. And pantsers, they just write by the seat of their pants. Uh, they just sit down and just start writing. Stephen King is a pantser. You know, he just sits down and takes off. Uh, I don't know how people do that. I have to, I'm a plotter. So I, I always uh, outline a story first. I work out all of the twists and turns and the red herrings and everything that's going to happen. It's it's not really an outline ABC format, but more of a, a prose treatment. And it's broken out in block paragraphs, and each paragraph represents a chapter. So I kind of write down what's going to happen in this chapter. What What is moving okay. the plot forward? So, uh, you know, what are the important things that I have to put in each chapter to keep the book going? So that... Um, but first of all, you know, I have to come up with an idea and a, a, a storyline. Um, my new novel, my my upcoming novel, that this is going to be published October the 4th. It's called The Mad, Mad Murders of Marigold Way. Oh, wow. And wow. it is a dark comedy murder mystery uh, that takes place at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, the I... I just got the idea to do it. It was May of 2020. So this was like two months into the pandemic and we were still under lockdown, no vaccines in sight, and people were paranoid and uncertain and kind of scared. And, you know, we were all wearing masks and social distancing and sure. looking at each other weird at the grocery store and uh, all that. And And at the same time, you know, my wife and I were here at home and we live in the suburbs. We would go for walks and stuff. That was our existence. You know, we would just be at home. And there was a house that was for sale on our neighborhood and on our street. And it was for sale for months. It just would not sell. And it was like, you know, what's wrong with this house? And and so I started thinking about, you know, what life was our lives were like then. And so I came up with this tale uh and it involves the empty house and the pandemic and two couples that live on the street uh and it's a murder mystery and it's it, it, and i was inspired by thornton wilder's our town and coen brothers movies and so i i set out actually to write what i envisioned to be a coen brothers movie so it has that kind of feel to it 
Um, and uh, so, you know, I outlined it. And then, you know, once I outlined and I was happy with the outline, I just wrote it, you know, Zoom. Um, and it took about three months. And then we found that publishers weren't really interested in publishing it. They liked the story, but they didn't, at that time, they thought, well, our readers don't want to hear about the pandemic in a, in a yeah. novel, uh, which my agent and I thought was very strange because we were living it, you know, as part of history. Um, and it took it took over a year to sell it. And finally we did, and now it's finally coming out. So, oh. and I think more and more fiction is coming out that, that mentions the pandemic and you know acknowledges that we have gone through almost three years of this nonsense and craziness um so it is absurd and and i wanted to write a novel that was absurd and creepy at the same time fair enough no i understand i understand okay um note to me for editing we're going to stop for a minute uh, I apologize. Um, so have, have we played La Strada yet? I can't remember. Yeah, we did. Well, we're on okay. to Il Bidoni. Il Bidoni. Okay. So note to self again, cut this part out, and we're going to introduce Il Bidoni. Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, our next so, piece um, is... Uh, so, I mean, one of the cues you wanted to choose was... Uh, El Bidonte, kind of, kind of tell me a little bit about that now. That maybe relates to what you were just talking about. Yeah, El Bidonte. Uh, by the way, Quartet Records just put out a magnificent edition of this soundtrack. Um, it this was uh, released in 1955. Uh, Fellini's movie El Bidonte. It's it's a crime movie. It's a um, almost like a, a, it's a, an Italian film noir, and it stars um, Broderick Crawford. As well oh. as Julietta Messina, uh, Julietta Messina uh, okay. and Richard Basehart is in it as well. Um, wow. And wow. it's, you know, for my, for my money, it's not a great Fellini movie, but it's a great Nino Rota score. It's one of my favorites. And that's why I picked it. And it's just got some a lot of playful stuff in it, some great melodies. And um, uh, for me, it was worth it just for the score. So uh, here is uh, Il Bidoni. Fair enough, let's have a uh, give a listen. Enjoy.
You know, what you just said actually kind of prompted another question from me, is that is that, can it, in your view, because you you really appreciate all forms of cinema, international and, and different genres and those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you think? And there's not a right or wrong answer here, but can a, can a score save a movie? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Because if you take a score away and just watch a movie without any, the music that is associated with it, um, it's going to be very different. You know, in Star Wars, I'll use this as an example. George Lucas showed a rough cut of Star Wars without the music before he had some temporary music or something. He, John Williams had not done the score yet, but okay. he showed it for you know some 20th Century Fox people and some of his pals were in the audience, like Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma and you know that crowd were in there, and the movie bombed. I mean, people oh. that they were oh. going the so Fox got was very uh, nervous. And Spielberg was the only one in the audience that said, this is going to be a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, Brian De Palma walked out and say, told George Lucas, said, sorry, man, I think your career's over. <laughs> but then when John Williams' score got added to it, it just lifted the thing up into what Lucas envisioned, you know? into that old school serial magnificent you know old school you know swashbuckling score yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean yeah. And, and and to be fair i mean a lot of our listeners and i've been fortunate perhaps you have as well i've been fortunate to to witness a couple of screens of film before they had a score added you know or maybe there was a temp track or who knows what but 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 you see the raw footage and it's like it falls flat in many cases but yet when you add music to it it's like wow it elevates it like you wouldn't believe do you understand what i'm saying right well you know the magnificent seven take take that for example you know that lively theme you know um it's usually played when the guys are just riding horses across the screen you know now take away the music and uh, there's just guys riding across the screen. <laughs> yeah. And it's boring. <laughs> but that music is so invigorating and, and uh, lively that it make, gives it some excitement. Yeah. And, and yet I'd be curious about your opinion about this. I'm, I'm kind of venturing off where I shouldn't go, I guess. But I'm going to ask you anyway. Is... In modern cinema, is music being overused? I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think in modern music, we're, we're getting away from the classic film score. Uh, I mean, there are still film scores, and there are film composers that do scores, uh, but they're nothing like what they used to be. The, the, I mean, how much, how much can you walk out of, say, a movie made in the last 20 years, uh, last two years, and be able to hum the, the theme song. You know, yeah. just you yeah. can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, so much so much action music is just whereas back in John Barry's 1960s, 
you would actually get the theme song during an action scene, you know, uh, yeah. like when Connery's running over the roof and you only live twice and you hear the that that majestic arrangement of the theme song as he's fighting the, those guys on top of the roof at Kobe Docks. Spot on. You know, Spot on. you just yep. don't get that anymore unless it's a John, maybe a John Williams score. That I think that's an exception. Um, and, you know, there are exceptions, of, of course. But, you know, and also too many movies are just building their scores out of uh, already existing pop songs where they license a song here and there, uh, you know, all through the all through the movie. And that's just, you know, eh, I think it's lazy and and eh, sometimes it works. And, you know, but, uh, you know, I think I think the, the age of the film composer as an integral part of the movie is gone. I, I would I concur with you on that. I really would. I really would. Listen, I mean, I listen, I can't thank you enough. I really respect the work that you do. You uh, you mentioned the, uh, the, the the monthly kind of podcast that you do that, that talks about history of film and those sorts of things. You, you've done that. You've had continuation models, uh, novels about uh, James Bond, and those sorts of things. You also have, as I recall, another novel that's coming out pretty soon that's unrelated it's like something on its own tell us a little bit about that well well that, that's that's what i was talking about the pandemic novel the mad mad murders of marigold way it comes out on october okay. 4th yeah and you can pre-order it now uh on amazon um or go to my website uh, if you're in the chicago area you can come to the book launch which is october 9th uh at centuries and sleuths bookstore one of the great mystery bookstores um in Forest Park, Illinois. So, yeah, hope to see people there. Yeah, listen, to my listeners, if you're, I can't encourage you enough. Raymond's a terrific writer. I've read many of his books, and I and I just love his work, and I can't encourage you enough to take advantage of that. He's got the, uh, what is it, the Black Stiletto series that has been out there and those sorts of things. Lots of things that he has done that, are hugely successful, and I and I want to say, help confirm me for this. Isn't there, isn't there something in the pipeline that that might become a film, or am I wrong in that? Well, the Black Stiletto is still under our option. Uh, there's a producer that optioned it ten years ago, and about six years ago, ABC picked it up and they started developing it for a television series. Um, but um, after a year. Uh, the uh, they changed presidents at ABC and the new president dropped it in favor of something else. Oh. And so uh, the producer still has the option and he's still pitching it. So who knows what will happen? Um, he, he's, the, wonder, he's, the wonderful world of entertainment. I mean, if yeah, you know, no, it's a typical, oh. typical Hollywood, typical Hollywood story. So I understand. But, but to my listeners, I want you to understand this man's work as as has led to potential moving into uh, you know tv movies or feature films and those sorts of things that shows you how serious he is and what a terrific artist he is so i please you you, you take note of that and listen to raymondbenson.com and uh, and take advantage of getting to know more about him because he has a lot to offer raymond i can't thank you enough for joining us i really appreciate especially a second appearance and i love that you have exposed us to uh, 
maybe perhaps things that we haven't heard before or that I haven't considered. And so uh, thank you again for joining us. You're welcome. So with uh, with that, I, you know, I'm just going to say that, the, again, our thanks to, to Raymond for joining us today, as well as all our listeners and in particular our pa- patrons who uh, get some extra content as a result of this. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. But my name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thank you for joining us. So what's the score? <laughs>